0: Welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. We have the privilege of having with us today David Herrick, Esquire, lawyer extraordinaire. Welcome
1: back to the show, David. Thanks. Good to see you again.
0: As always, any opinions that are offered on Everyday Law are those of the host and his guests and not those of Howard County Community College faculty, staff, or employees. And any discussions of legal issues are not intended to provide legal advice for individual legal situations. If you have a legal problem and you listen to the show, it is imperative that you go seek an attorney and acquaint them with all the facts associated with your individual situation so you can get tailor-made legal advice. With that said, let's turn to what's going on in the legal life of David Herrick these days. What's going on in the legal life of David Herrick these well, days? Well,
1: it's been a tough week. I have a client that uh, sadly was um, struck violently by a, a driver who had, um, unfortunately, did not have insurance, was driving on a license.
0: Whoa, 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 license. whoa insurance is required under maryland law well
1: that is true but nevertheless this driver was driving without insurance and uh and unfor- and she had a brain injury and uh three level spinal fusion oh, and uh sadly obviously since there's no insurance to go after for the driver of the other vehicle she's forced to go after her own insurance which uh unfortunately only provides a hundred thousand dollars worth of coverage and so i wanted to talk a little bit with your listeners about how important uninsured motorist coverage is. And because when you get injured, most people go to buy auto insurance and generally their agent is want, going to want to give them a quote, which is a cheap quote so they don't lose the business. So most of them don't buy the minimum, which is 30000 60000 And that for our listeners means when you have 30000 60000 in coverage that each individual maximum recovery from the person who has 30,000, 60,000 insurance is 30,000, and the total recovery is 60. So if there's three people in the car, let's say theoretically they have the same exact serious injury, they would typically divide up the 60, 20, 20, 20. If there's one person in the car that's seriously injured, the most they can get is 30. And typically, most people who have responsible insurance agents carry at least a hundred thousand in coverage. But that is nothing if you have any kind of serious injury. So in this case, the my client's medical bills are well in excess of sixty thousand dollars because of all the surgeries and everything else that's going on with her. And she only has a hundred thousand to chase. And of course, sadly, her insurance coverage is through an ERISA fund, which means she's got to pay back every dollar that was paid towards her coverage out of the 100,000 that she gets and so at the end of the day she's going to be ending up with very little in her pocket because of that. And one of the things that I do that I think that that all your listeners should do is a, a new law got passed thanks to the efforts of the Maryland Association of Justice and and some legislators in Annapolis a few years ago adding what is called enhanced UIM coverage. So let's talk a little bit about how underinsured motorist coverage works in Maryland. So Let's use the example of the defendant has 30,000 in coverage and you have 100,000 in coverage. Well, okay. under most policies, probably 98% of the policies that are sold in Maryland, the first 30,000 comes out of defendant and then you get to chase your own policy for the other 100. The first thing you need to know is they cannot increase your policy rates or your insurance rates because it's not your fault that somebody hit you that didn't have enough coverage. So, the way it works for ninety-eight percent of the policies that are sold in Maryland is that the first thirty thousand comes from the defendant, and then you chase your hundred. But your hundred of your own policy gets a credit for the thirty thousand that the defendant has, so you only get a total of a hundred. Well, enhanced underinsured motorist coverage, which costs very little, I would be surprised if it cost any of the listeners more than fifty or sixty bucks more onto their policy than they're paying now allows for an abrogation of the offset so instead of having thirty thousand dollars and then a hundred and then your carrier only has to pay you seventy it allows your underinsured motorist policy to sit on top of the policy of the defendant so you'd have 130 to chase if in a typical accident both people have a hundred thousand in coverage your underinsured motorist coverage does nothing for you but if you've got the enhanced coverage you at least have 200 that you can chase I would recommend to every listener to, at the very least, get a quote for what the maximum coverage they can buy. So most people say, look, you know, I'm a college kid or I'm, I don't make a lot of money and so I don't need a lot of insurance and I'm a safe driver and I don't cause injuries. Well, that's really not what you buy insurance for. What you buy insurance for is to protect you if somebody hits you and they won't let you buy more underinsured motorist coverage than what your liability coverage is. So I would recommend everybody increase their coverage to at least 250000 500000 or three hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, 500000 and then buy enhanced UM coverage, because at the very least, then they're looking at two fifty if they get in a serious accident, which, unless the most catastrophic injuries, will cover their medical bills, will give them some money for their lost wages, will give them some money for their pain and suffering. It, it's it's a funny story. I Probably 15 years ago, I represented somebody in they didn't have enough coverage of course the person that hit him had at that time 20, uh, 20 was our limit and the person and they had 100 and i got the 100 and the case was worth a lot more than that but there was just nowhere else to get the money from and so i sat and i used to sit down with all my clients and i said listen i, I want you to raise your underinsured motorist coverage and 30 days later I, I would call them back and i called this guy back and i said did you raise your coverage yes i did i raised my coverage to you know to $100,000 And two years later, I get a call from him and he said, my wife's been in a very bad accident. She's got four broken ribs and a collapsed lung and she's been in the hospital for three weeks and she's home. Can you come down the house and see us? I said, sure. So I drive down the house and this is one of the few times that I put my entire size 12 shoe in my mouth because I looked through my notes and I saw that this guy had raised his coverage. So instead of sitting down at the kitchen table as his wife is on the couch and saying, let's take a look at the policy – I say, well, the good news is that you raised your underinsurer's coverage to two hundred fifty thousand, so we're good to go. And he starts looking red in the face, and uh, and I said, don't tell me you raised it for a year and then lowered it just to save the damn fifty dollars. And he shook his head and he said no. And I said, well, what's the problem? And he said, well, I raised my coverage, but, but I didn't raise employees. hers because she's a safe driver. Now. That wouldn't even dawned on me. It turns out they both had different policies. They both had insurance agents who they were friends with in high school, and she kept her policy and he kept his, and you can't change one without the other if you're on a joint policy, to which she responds... I hope I can say this on the air, but you SOB, we're paying more money so you're protected and we're not paying for my. You took an oath before God to protect me and here you are and we're paying all this money. And it was like mayhem. And he's looking at me with laser beams going through me going, dude, I could have called anyone like you are destroying my marriage here. right? <laughs> sure enough, at the end of the case, only she only had a hundred thousand in coverage. We got the hundred thousand in coverage. He has never spoken to me again. Because you know, anytime they're short money in that marriage, she's going to hold that over his head. Well, it's 150, he wouldn't have grand, thing. 150 exactly. grand more we could have got. Meanwhile, she sent me a lot of cases and she increased her coverage. Well, I learned a lesson from that. When I, and and I don't know, maybe this, this is probably treading on lines of ethical uh, problems, but before I give my clients a check in a case, I make them call their carrier and I make them at least get a quote for what the underinsured increase would be.
0: It costs nothing.
1: and It costs nothing. Now, if they're still dumb enough to not raise their rates after they've been through something, then you know their coverage, then I can't, You know, obviously I'm gonna give them the check, but the overwhelming majority of them will say to me, yes, you're right, it's $80, it's $90, or it's $100 in the grand scheme of things. And two times in my career, I've represented somebody where that, in fact, they did have lower coverage, and I got all that coverage, and then, in one case, the person themselves got another accident. And I knew I said, Look, you get another accident. You had spinal surgery from the first one. You're probably gonna have to have revision surgery and everything else. And fortunately, she had, you know, three hundred thousand dollars to chase the second time around because she listened. So it is absolutely crucially vital that all your listeners at least get a quote. And if you can afford it, you need to get it. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter, you know, how great of a driver you are. That's not why you get hurt. You get hurt by the other idiots on the road that aren't following the safety rules. And so that's why you need to protect yourself. And and let me
0: deconstruct a little bit of what you said, because you said a great deal and it's exceedingly useful. One of the things that I hear often from clients is the idea that somehow even if the other driver has the Maryland minimum of say $30,000 that they can then be pursued individually for the difference. In other words, I may have a $50,000 case, but you know, I'll get the 30 from their insurance and then I can go after them for the remaining $20,000. What
1: are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I could win the lotto too, but it's not <laughs> likely to happen. First of all, anybody that's married their assets are going to be protected because any marital asset that is in both people's names, and that's something else probably your listeners should know. Maryland is a state that recognizes tenancy by the entirety. So if you and I were to own a house, say, down the beach together, and I, God forbid, hurt someone and they end up being a quadriplegic and they sued me, they could force us to sell the house out in at the beach and they would take my half or give you the opportunity to buy out my half, right? but. If you hit me and I end up being a quadriplegic and your house is owned in you and your wife's name, she owns your entire house and you own your entire house. So when I try to pursue a judgment against your house and attach that, I can't. I can't because she owns it entirely. So anybody that's married, a lot of them keep property not together. You really should seriously think about keeping it together because it protects you. God forbid you're not paying attention sometime and you you know you, you end up injuring somebody. But in terms of going after somebody's XX assets, they just file bankruptcy. And so they're really – it's a very rare circumstance in which you have somebody that you can actually chase their own assets. The beauty of underinsurance motorist coverage is that – and by the way, if you were to chase their assets, underinsured motorist coverage would get a credit for it. The beauty of having underinsured motorist coverage is you don't have to do any of that, right? You simply go against your own policy and your policy then chases that person down to see if they can get reimbursed for what they paid you. So it takes all of the stress, all of the oh geez, did the person hit me have assets? You know, do I have to go hire a collection lawyer? Do I have to go try to attach this and that? All that burden is lifted from your shoulders and placed on the shoulders of your insurance company to get reimbursed for what it pays you. So it is really a no-brainer. If there is anybody that you care about or love, you absolutely have to ensure that they've got at least two fifty in coverage. It is a nightmare to be in a situation like the one that I have, unfortunately, you know, and most people think, hey, I have a hundred thousand insurance a lot it's not not in today's costs of medical bills and lost wages and everything else it's it's just not enough coverage
0: so you mentioned earlier in your discourse that you cannot buy more uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage than liability coverage is that the
1: law or what's that yes it's because the thought is well if you're going to protect yourself if you get injured as a matter of public policy, you ought to be able to protect, you know, people that you injure ought to have that same protection. So in order to have 250000 in underinsured motorist coverage, you've got to have 200000 in bodily injury coverage if you hurt someone else. You can okay. only buy what you have. Now, the stupidest thing is insurance companies sometimes will try to get people to waive the amount of their underinsured coverage. So they buy liability policy for $250,000 and they sign a waiver saying they don't want underinsured motorist coverage. Uh, for that amount, yeah. they're OK with 30000 60000 Interestingly enough, I represented somebody about four years ago where that happened. This poor lady was 70 years old. She was a lifelong school teacher. She got injured by a driver. And she had a million-dollar umbrella. So she had all—and we're going to talk about that in a second, that's too, because that's, that's important. But she had a million-dollar umbrella. And somehow, they convinced her to sign a waiver to lower her own coverage for 30000 Well. Wow.
0: Her own uninsured motor. Her own covered. insured so uninsured motor. So she had a million-dollar umbrella
1: policy, $300,000 liability policy, and, you know, that is criminal. And the legislature does a decent job, and they – I don't entirely agree with it, but what the legislator says, if you're going to have somebody do that, the company's got to disclose to them the actual savings that they are getting – from lowering this million dollar or 300,000 underinsured motors coverage to the mandatory minimum of in 30. In her case it would have been $47. Now, nobody in their right mind is going to pay that for insurance and not. Then the the sad thing about the law is you only have to do it once. And then if you have that policy for the next 20 years, you never have to revisit it. So if you're young and aren't educated and don't know about it and you sign that waiver and you keep that policy for Then a you're week, screwed. You're screwed. Fortunately, in her case, the statute says that they have to disclose how much she's going to save and the form that they have to have her sign has to have some precise things on it. Well, guess what? They didn't do it. So when I first got the case, they said, look, all there is is 30 in coverage. said, no, no, I don't think so. The umbrella didn't apply to her. We'll talk about umbrellas in a second. But she did have 300,000 in underlying coverage that they said was only 20. It was you know, before the law changed. And I forced them to prove to me that she signed a paper that complied with the law. And they hemmed and hawed and looked for it because it was 20, 20 years ago. And eventually they had to concede that she did not, in fact, sign a paper that complied. And I managed to get her the 300000 which I actually, well, I filed a, a complaint with the insurance commission saying, look, I've been requesting this document. They refused to. And then once I did that, they kind of got in an order and said, all right, look, we'll you know, we'll do the right thing here. But the the lesson learned is insurance companies never do the right thing unless lawyers like you and I compel them to do
0: Well, And so. there are kinds of coverage that come on auto policies. And what I'm thinking of is PIP coverage, is that for the longest time, PIP, which is personal injury protection coverage, a limited amount of no-fault insurance that covers medical bills, lost income, and that kind of stuff, was compulsory. And the insurance industry found that that was an expensive coverage for them relative to what they were allowed to charge. And so they had this great idea that they were going to offer cheaper policies and the legislature permitted them to have PIP waivers. And it's something that I see so often with people that they're in a crash and they have no PIP and they don't have health insurance and there's no mechanism for them to get the treatment that they want.
1: The greatest thing about PIP is that it is no-fault coverage. Meaning, and it is insane. Any of your listeners should make sure, pull out their deck sheets, make sure that they have PIP, and if they waive PIP, to call up their insurance agent or if it's Geico, call directly and change that right now. And while they're making that call, they need to raise their PIP to the maximum amount of PIP they will sell. Most companies will sell up to $10,000. Now, what is PIP for? PIP is vitally important to what you and I do for a couple of reasons. Number one, a lot of times people are out of work, right? And when they're out of work, How do they pay their bills? So sometimes you have clients that say to you, look, I know I'm not better, I know I'm still treating, but I gotta settle this case or they're gonna take my house. If you have PIP, PIP pays 85% of your lost wages, right? So you're going to be able to get, if you have 10,000, 10,000 in wage benefits to help you pay your bills while you get better and not compromise the value of your case by being forced to settle because you have no other choice. The second best thing about Pip is that it's no fault. So god forbid you make a mistake driving a car. God forbid you, you know, I don't know, you're playing with the radio or you get drop a phone or you somehow fall asleep at the wheel, you hit a tree and you're out of work 3 months. Guess what? Your Pip's going to cover your wages. So that, you know, you're going to have 10,000 some carriers even sell 20,000. And I again try to have all my clients bump their Pip up. The cost of it, you know, 50 Dama. bucks, 100 bucks at most. And it's life-saving to people when they're out of work for a surgery or for a long period of time, and it covers them through everything. And it is a no-brainer. And it, in my view, it's borderline treasonous for an insurance agent to advise somebody to waive PIP when they know damn well that it's in the person's interest to have PIP. It really is. I think
0: it, that the problem with insurance agents is very often they have dual allegiances. On the one hand, they want to sell you a policy. On the other hand, they want to keep doing business for you name whatever the insurance company is. And the insurance companies are not crazy about PIP. And they're not crazy about large uninsured motorist limits because those are things they can't charge that much for. When they get hit for them, it's a pretty expensive proposition. And so I really do think there's a true problem with that.
1: Well, I think the problem is people come in and they say, I want to, you know, save me on my insurance. How can you save me? Well, the easiest way to make your rate more competitive to, you know, another agent's rate is to eliminate what they say the thrills are. You know, it's laughable that, you know, Liberty has these commercials like buy what you need. They're just trying to preload you with the concept that they're going to convince you to eliminate all the coverage that you actually need as to the pose of the coverage they're going to sell you. So it really is a problem. And and it is, you know, my client in the current case has become an evangelist for, she raised her her rates and everybody she I've never had a client you know be that proactive she called everybody she knows she has a job where she deals with people that often drive in the context what she's doing and she says look bring me your deck sheet let's look at it together you know I'm a perfect example of why you need to raise your coverage you know you look what's happened to me you know I am completely hosed in this circumstance and you know you buy it to protect yourself and to protect the people that you love you know the great thing about underinsured motorist coverage is a family member of your household and they're in, you know, their friend's car and he's driving like an idiot and he causes an accident and he doesn't have enough coverage and the other driver doesn't have coverage. Guess what? Your own policy kicks in. And so it is like a halo around the people in your household that you love to protect you. I mean, let's face it, if you're under the age of 50, if you're going to suffer a catastrophic health event, statistically, it's going to come from an auto accident. So if you've got PIP and you've got plenty of underinsured motors coverage, it is going to be a life-altering event to you emotionally and physically and everything else. But that coverage allows it not to be a life-altering event financially.
0: Not a financial catastrophe. Right. So let's do a couple things because we don't have a vast amount of time. And one is I'd like to touch on some of the issues you raised with regard to this client that you alluded to at the beginning. And you were talking about the different coverages and you were talking about ERISA insurance and that kind of stuff. Could you, in just common person parlance, talk about the numbers, the effects, and how you would go about trying to ensure she gets the medical care she needs and that she also gets an economic recovery?
1: Right. So what happens is there's essentially three types of liens, okay? okay? So most people don't realize that when they get in an accident, it is overwhelmingly likely they're going to have to reimburse their health insurance company for what they get from the accident. Now, personally, I think that's an outrage. It seems to me that you buy insurance, you're insuring yourself against an adverse event, and if the adverse event happens, that's why you pay premiums and your insurance should pay them. Sadly, most people get their health insurance through their employer and the employer doesn't care whether they have to pay their insurance back. They just want them to have health insurance because of the tax breaks the employer gets from offering it. Sure. And so they don't negotiate that out. They allow the carriers to put this quote unquote subrogation right in, which allows them to be paid back from whatever settlement or whatever verdict you get. Okay. Now, like I said, there's three types of liens. There are federal government Liens, such as Medicare, Medicare, Medicaid, Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, you know, if you're military. sure. And those liens are, quote unquote, super liens, meaning that you as a lawyer and your client have a duty to tell the federal government, hey, I was in an accident, OK, and I owe you money, OK? And oftentimes, whenever you're dealing with Medicare or Medicaid, the other side won't even write you a check until Medicare gets paid because if somebody doesn't pay back the federal government, they can go after the other side, even though the other side's paid you, they can go after your client directly, they can go after you as a lawyer. So that's what we call a super lean. okay? Then there are what I would call ERISA liens. So ERISA is the Employment Retirement Insurance Security Act, which is a federal act that enables employers to self-fund their own health care plans. So they're ERISA funded plans. A lot of times people work for a union, they're ERISA funds. Meaning that they're not really a true insurance company in the sense that they're not like, you know, Blue Cross and Blue Shield or anything like that. They're self-funded. So all of the members of that union pay into a fund which then insures you know, medical care. So when somebody needs medical care, it gets paid out of the fund. When you have a case where there is an ERISA fund, ERISA is very unwilling to negotiate the amount of the lien, like the federal government will. There's actually a formula when you have a Medicare lien that the federal government realizes that you've hired an attorney to help you and realizes there's a cost associated with getting them paid back. And so they discount the number that they actually paid. So if they paid $10,000, you work through the formula, and you may, at the end of the day, only have to pay them back six, allowing your client to keep the additional four. With an ERISA fund, the ERISA funds generally are not willing to negotiate. If they pay $10,000, they, they want, want the $10,000 back. And so that your client ends up getting hosed, you know, potentially 30, 40% on what they ultimately recover because the ERISA plan says, and they're, If you ask them, they would say, Look, this is our, you know, we're not an insurance company. We're not profiting. We have a duty to our members. We have a duty to our members. Our members are self funding this. We need to get every dollar back. So, in a situation like that, it's very hard to negotiate. Now, that being said, I have the money for my client and I put it in an escrow account and I try to play hardball and I beg and I plead. And, you know, occasionally they will reduce what they have, but it's very difficult to. The third kind of lien is a private non-ERISA based insurance company like Blue Cross and Blue Shield or you know any of the others you can think of and so those companies routinely are willing to negotiate the amount of their lien so if their lien is you know let's say $50,000 okay and let's say there's only 50,000 in coverage well if their lien gets paid back your client gets nothing And the reality is they're not going to see a dime because what would be the, why would your client even bother bringing a case? Why would you probably, you know, if there's 50,000 in coverage, 50,000 in bills, what are you going to do? So when you're in a situation like that, you kind of have a little bit over the barrel and you call them up and you say, look, you know, if my client doesn't get anything out of this case, we're not going to bring it, you know, so you need to work with us here. So you're $50,000. You know, typically what happens in a situation like that is the care, they will pay for their share of your client's attorney's fees. And, you know, and you'll you'll split that basically a third, a third, a third, a third to your client, a third to you. So on the $50,000 $50, example,
0: right. health insurer gets paid s- back 17000 s- of the fifty grand they paid. The lawyer gets a third and the client gets a third. Right. So they right. do get something. Plus they get the care.
1: Right. Plus they get the care they need. So that's the, the best way to handle the situation. So one of the interesting things that you and I were talking about, you know, off the air, I guess, that I wanted to bring up is quickly, since I, I see we don't have a lot of time left, is... I just wanted to touch on how unfair the jury selection process is in Maryland. Uh, We are one of very less than a handful of states in which attorneys do not have the ability to ask potential jurors questions about their biases. So let's set the stage.
0: There's this process called voir dire from the French to see and to speak. And it's an interaction between the parties through their lawyers, and potential jurors. So you get a fair-minded jury that doesn't bring any prejudices into the case. And that's what
1: you're talking about. In theory, yes. Ironically, there's an interesting history to this. attorney conducted voir dire is a uniquely American concept. Dating back to the colonies, it used to be in order to sit on a jury, you had to pledge your allegiance to the king. So, you would have to plead that you were willing to be biased in favor of the crown so that the crown could get the conviction whether the person was guilty or innocent. And the crown was trying colonists, and the colonists were upset. And so, naturally, when we broke off from England and we had our revolution, one of the things that developed out of that was attorney conducted voir dire. It was felt initially the towns in New England, the town council would pick jurors, people that they thought that were fair. And obviously that's not practical with the amount of the litigation that happens. And so attorney conducted voir dire was developed because it was felt that an attorney has through cross-examination, which everybody says is the, the best way to determine truth, has the ability to ask jurors questions and ferret out bias. And in fact, in the original Bill of Rights, Attorney Conductive Wardier was listed as a right. And the founding fathers were afraid that if they listed certain things, that fair trial would be limited to the things they listed. So instead, they decided to amend it and, and make it fair trial. And unfortunately, we're one of the in- the states that doesn't. And the reason that that's so problematic is that you know, when a judge is asking questions and a Judge says, "Can you be fair?" You know, who is going to stand up and say, "No, I can't be fair." Your you Honor, know, I'm, I'm an unfair person. Your Honor, on a public record, people aren't going to do this. And you know, one of the other questions that our court of appeals says, "Yeah, they have to ask whether you have a racial or ethnic bias." Well, who is going to stand up in a courtroom and go, "You know what? I I don't like Indians." Like, I mean, come on. Right. Like, it's not a fair, even reasonably calculated to lead to getting a fair jury. And although the rules allow for attorney-conducted voir dire, in Maryland, it is not. I've asked for it, and they've never allowed me. Generally, judges don't do it. It, As a matter of fact, it really pains me, but I had a case in Anne Arundel County recently that I asked for a jury questionnaire, which is at least trying to give them time to answer questions on their own. And the judge called down to uh, jury assignment, was told, we can't do that, even though the rules allow that. And so why is this such a problem? Well, here's why it's a problem. We are one of the few states in which... In a civil case, a unanimous jury is required. And so if you've got six jurors and you need to convince every one of those jurors, depending on what study you look at, something like 6 to 7% of the population believes doctors should never be sued no matter what they do. Then they're done that. If you get one of those jurors on your jury, it doesn't matter if you have them on videotape. It doesn't matter how I'm saying that he or she made an error or they screwed up. That juror is never going to find against them. And compounding matters further in the era of our current political climate, whatever your politics are, the scariest thing, I just had a conversation with a trial consultant that I I recently uh, engaged in a case. And what we're finding now is that jurors are actually Googling other jurors. And so... If a pro-Trump juror figures out that another juror is an anti-Trump juror, they will completely disagree with whatever that, quote, snowflake says. Vice versa, if a anti-Trump juror Googles another juror and finds out through their Facebook page that they're pro-Trump, they will disagree on principle with anything that person has to say. That is a nightmare for what you and I do, because it doesn't matter what the merits of our case are. It doesn't even matter what our client's issue is. We have jurors fighting with each other over a political issue that... has nothing to do with the case and when you've got a unanimous jury of six all that does is help the defendant because all they have to do is hang the jury up get one vote and your client's not going to get any justice and particularly in this time in this climate it is so important that we revisit and we keep trying to get judges to see the importance of why they should allow juror questions.
0: You sound like a guy who believes the trial should actually
1: have evidence and witnesses. I do. I'm a big believer in the jury system. If it's allowed, if you've got a fair and impartial jury, I believe people have with their own common sense are way better than a judge or anyone else who could sit and be a trier of fact. The problem is you've got to get the right people in the jury box. And that requires that lawyers have the opportunity to ferret out bias through jury questionnaires, through attorney conducted voir dire. On that
0: note, we have to wind up today's edition of Everyday Law. I'd like to thank you for coming in, David. I'd like to think your quest to get attorney voir will take place and that everybody in the state of Maryland will go out and get good uninsured motorist coverage. Thanks so much. Thanks. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell.
1: Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.